Well, Genesis 45 is the climax of the story. We readers have known all the details and events surrounding the characters, but these finally become plain to those involved. What was separated and in shambles is reunited, and we learned last week in chapter 44 that this reunion is facilitated by the unlikeliest of characters. The story of Jacob and his 12 sons is the story of God redeeming a family through his grace, and in Genesis 45, we see God's redemption flower and bear fruit. So today, I'll attempt to lead us through reflection on God's redemption and reconciliation of this family. We'll look at the narrative from three perspectives, as Alistair Begg uh, influenced my thinking. First, we'll reflect on the transformation of Judah that led to the raw emotion of the moment. Second, we'll reflect on God's providence. And third, we'll reflect on the beauty of forgiveness. Just so you know up front, this text will challenge you to take your sin seriously. The text will challenge you to bow before God's power and goodness, and the text will challenge you to forgive and to seek forgiveness for your own wrongs. But I like to look backwards, so let's go back to trace this family's brokenness to the present reunion. So let's take a walk. Walk with your fingers over to Genesis 12. Just as Adam is the father of all humans, Abram is the father of all believers. So Genesis 12:1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now the Lord chose a man like any other in the land of Ur. It was God's divine prerogative to bless him so that he could be a blessing to others. But we see what the Lord is building through Abram a nation of people, but even more personally, a family. A family to bless all the other families of the earth. So let's walk again over to Genesis 15. Starting in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now, this prophesies what our text in Genesis 45 begins to narrate. This family becoming sojourners in a foreign land where they will serve and be afflicted for 400 years. God will work blessing through this family's suffering. But this text also hints that God's blessing will not rest on Abram alone, but also his offspring. So walk to Genesis 17, which will clarify Starting in verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. 
No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, God is making an everlasting relationship to bless all the families of the earth for all time. And he chose Abraham's family, generation after generation, to work through. Now, what we may expect of this first family may be what we may expect of a royal family. No racy tabloid headlines, exuding respect, they're above the fray, prim and proper. But what Genesis gives us is more like an episode of Jerry Springer. From Abraham to Isaac, then down to Jacob, these are lousy dudes. God chose to work his blessing through warped and wicked people. But finally, we have a glimmer of hope. Joseph, a man of character and respect, although a little full of himself when he was younger. Finally, a good guy. So at the end of his life, at the time to pronounce the covenant blessing on the next generation, Jacob reveals that God will work through Judah... Walk over to Genesis 37. So I want to piggyback on Pastor Troy's description of Judah and his transformation to set the emotional scene. But we need to see again what was true of Judah to see what he is now according to Genesis 45. So Joseph, horrible guy, right? He killed their mother, set their donkeys free, defrauded the brothers' retirement accounts, Actually, he he was just a tattletale who had a nice jacket and couldn't help but talk about his dreams at breakfast. So the brothers came to the only logical conclusion, to murder him. But Judah had other ideas. Look at 37, starting in uh, verse 26. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Murder. No. He's our brother. He's our own flesh. That's too harsh for a brother. But let's sell him into slavery. Genesis 38 tips the reader off that special attention must be paid to Judah because the chapter of backstory is inserted in the narrative about Joseph. So chapter 38, uh, Judah continues his downward spiral. In the first few verses, he takes a Canaanite wife, has three sons. Two of them are so wicked that God puts them to death. Some time passes, his wife dies, and the spiral continues as he tries to comfort himself with a prostitute. He then orders the death of his daughter-in-law when she became pregnant, only to learn that he's the one at fault. So Judah is the cream of the crop, if we're talking about the scum of the earth. The author has painted a portrait of Judah, and it's nasty. 
like the Van Gogh with tomato soup splashed on it. So you could uh, Google that later. Now the portrait of 37 and 38 is contrasted with the portrait of Joseph, Joseph in 39. He's flourishing in Potiphar's house while refusing his wife's advances. So Judah and Joseph are going in opposite directions. And the narrative continues with Joseph's rise as then Judah slips into the background not to be heard again explicitly from until chapter 43. But walk over to 42.21. Now notice that the brothers in general are coming to admit their sin against Joseph. The Egyptian lord is putting pressure on them by demanding that Benjamin come and by holding Simeon until they return. So look at verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his, his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They heard Joseph kicking, screaming, and begging as they saw him ride off, lashed to a donkey. But I also want you to see the detail in the next verse. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. So hold on to that detail. We're going to need it when we get to chapter 45. Next, Judah specifically reappears in chapter 43, saying something surprising. Look at 43.8. And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. For my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. So Judah, the self-centered scum of the earth, makes a pledge of safety for someone else. But then his talk is put into action. Walk over to 4433. Judah pleads with the Egyptian lord for Benjamin's life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So Judah now is so concerned about his father that he is willing to stay in Egyptian slavery so that his younger brother his father's new favorite, could return home. Judah has changed from selfish to selfless. So 22 years had elapsed since Judah sold his brother in chapter 37 for money to sacrificing himself for his brother in chapter 44. Notice how vastly different Judah treated his father's favorite sons. The anti-hero of the narrative had become the hero, and Judah's transformation is now complete. So let's walk into the scene, 22 years in the making. Number one on your outline, an illustration of emotion. Emotion. 
Now, pressure had been building in Joseph as he interacted with his brothers leading up to this chapter. At the sight of Benjamin in chapter 43, Joseph had to rush out of the room to weep. And the same thing happened after Joseph overheard his brother's admittance of sinning against them in chapter 42. But those were only the earthquakes leading up to the eruption. Whatever Joseph was expecting, it was not the twist of fate that was Judah's sacrifice. Joseph forced everyone to exit, leaving 12 men in the room. The 11 had to be terrified to be in the presence of the second most powerful man in Egypt. And what they heard from their Lord was shocking. So consider two things. First, Mount St. Helens finally burst. Their Lord was crying, but I don't think crying really describes what was taking place. Joseph was weeping. He was coming unglued. And all the fluids in his head were coming out, those big wet tears, and you know what comes with that, snot, all coming out together with cries from his mouth so loud that the ones he sent out of the room heard Joseph weeping, and Pharaoh up the street heard it too. So Joseph had seen for himself the transformation that had occurred in Judah, and he could not keep his emotions in check. Instead, they came pouring out. But the second thing that the brothers heard was bound to be even more shocking than the first. Their Egyptian Lord spoke to them in their own language. He spoke and they understood, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? They heard with their own ears his voice. Because remember that detail from chapter 42? Every other time the brothers spoke to him, it was through an interpreter. But now he spoke to them through no intermediary. But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Now, put yourself in this scenario if you're one of the brothers. Your mind is racing. You're trying to figure out the words, I am Joseph. But also, you're trying to figure out why he's speaking to you in your shared language. Reflecting back on all the hardships that this man has put you and your brothers through over the last few months. The sight and the sounds of your brother being taken away as a captive are loading in your mind from your distant memory. The dialogue in your head, is this man Joseph? No, it it can't be. But if it is, the guilt racing up from from inside of you like a hundred knives and the fear of what this man may do to you. So the man who identified himself as Joseph says in verse 4, come closer, presumably so that the men could see him better. They step forward. They take a look at his 39-year-old face, noting the lines and the effects of the sun. Sorry to the old people in the room. Their memories crane for what that 17-year-old face looked like. Could this be him? Then the man said something that only he would know if he was Joseph. In fact, this knowledge only the 12 brothers shared. Verse 4, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into slavery into Egypt. 
So it is their brother, their brother who they profited from, their brother that they were envious of and they despised, and now they faced him. Their victim had become their judge, able to enact revenge, and yet Joseph raises the white flag and speaks peace into their hearts. So as we reflect on this emotional scene, 22 years in the making, we must turn our attention to our own sin. Because sin separated this family. Sins of the heart like jealousy, greed, selfishness, led to sinful actions, attempted murder, slavery, deceit. Judah had a renowned record of sinning, yet the Lord's grace transformed him. So Jen Wilkin asks in her Genesis study, what sin in your life have you regarded as a permanent blight on your character? What past or current sin seems insurmountable? The truth is it is this, Jesus can take that blight and that insurmountable obstacle and bury it in the, pla- the past. He can pluck it out of the present. He can wash you spotless and make you complete. God remained committed to Judah and his brothers, and he acted out of love. In verse 5, Joseph was sent ahead of his brothers to preserve life. That's what Jesus did in his life, going on ahead to achieve life for his brothers. And Judah sacrificed himself to death so that his brother could go free. That's what Jesus did, standing before people so he could suffer the punishment for sins so that they could go free. Real change is possible. Real freedom from slavery of sin and shame is available, and real reconciliation awaits. So two reflections for you. Number one, the availability of God's transforming grace is no excuse to entertain sin. Do not play with sin. Leave it in the past. Provide no opportunity in the present to entertain it. Because sin is strong, even in a Christian waiting to be fed, seeking to grow, buying its time for an opportunity to devour. Jesus even says in Luke 8, 14, And as for what seed fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And the author of Hebrews writes in 3:12 through 14, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold on to our original confidence firm to the end. So we must help each other and take seriously that some of us can even be hardened, deceived, and slide off the path. Our faith sunk and our soul lost. Don't entertain what you can excuse as easily forgiven. As Pastor Troy has said, sin will take you farther than you intended to go, and demand more of you than you intended to give. 
but thank God for His grace. Second, God can transform, so pray diligently to the God who makes the impossible possible. Jesus comments that it is easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. And he says that after a rich man leaves sad. The disciples ask, who can be saved? And Jesus says in Luke 18, 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So in the very next chapter, the rich and corrupt tax collector Zacchaeus is saved. He is the camel that God pushes through the eye of the needle. So pray diligently and desperately for God to change a hard heart. Because only God can. Every hour of every day provides another opportunity for change. If a heart still beats, we must continue to pray. God can do more than we can imagine. Even what we think is impossible. No one is ever too far gone for the reach of God, even Judah. So let's consider this scene second as an illustration of God's providence. John Piper defines what I mean. God sees to it that things happen in a certain way. God is sovereign, yes, exercising power, but he also exercises that power according to his divine purpose. So providence is power and purpose of God together in unison. So Joseph's brothers come closer, and he says to them in the second half of verse 4, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Now, if we could leave these verses up, and we will examine them together. So, in one of my Bibles, I've gone through highlighting the text in various colors. So, this verse and a half has three colors, and I think they are helpful. Um, There's the conjunction four in verse five, and I have highlighted it yellow. Now, it links two phrases together. And in this case, the four tells us a purpose statement. So in purple, I've highlighted the attributes of God or the actions that he can do based upon his character. So following the four in yellow in verse five is purple. God sent me before you to preserve life. Now this is something that God did. And on the other side of the four is blue characteristics or actions of people. So, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Now, the Bible has made a a sandwich out of ingredients that we would not normally eat together. Now, we can say that the brothers had a will that was evil. They had inward jealousy and hatred for Joseph, so they sold him into slavery. So we have the brother's will. At the same time, God has a good will to preserve life in this case. So he acted in ways to preserve Joseph's life. But these wills are not equal. 
God's will has superseded the brother's will. God's good will has superseded the brother's evil will as they both, God and the brothers, acted in time and space. So did God send uh, Joseph to Egypt? Yes. Did the brothers sell him into Egyptian slavery? Yes. Is God sovereign? Yes. Are the brothers responsible for the evil actions that they did? Yes. Alistair Begg says that Joseph looked beyond the actions and the reactions of men to see the hand of God. He looked beyond his brothers to explain his suffering, and he looked beyond Pharaoh to explain his blessing. His brother's will and God's will were opposed to each other, but God's will is ultimate because God has ultimate sway. So uh, let's put up a similar example in Peter's first sermon in Acts to explain the death of Jesus. Now this is Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. So men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So what put Jesus on the cross? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. By what means? The hands of lawless men. So according to Joseph, God was ultimately the cause of him getting to Egypt. And the key word is sent. Sent. Notice in verse 5, God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. But also, according to Joseph, his brothers were still guilty of sin. Verse 4, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into, into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. About their intentions and actions, Joseph says of them in Genesis 50, 20, As for you, his brothers, you meant evil against me. So the brothers were not pawns in God's playground with strings attached to them. But they were thinking and breathing actors. God's providence is no excuse for the brothers' sinful actions, nor our sinful actions. Otherwise, Joseph would not have been so concerned to test their character before revealing himself. Alistair Begg says again, the nature of sin is not altered by the use that that God makes of it. Because sin is still sin, even if God chooses to use that sin for His purpose and for His glory. So now, there is ample mystery here. I'm not going to solve it for us. But notice something ironic. Joseph had dreams of him being in power and authority over his brothers. So God used his brother's efforts to prevent Joseph from becoming a person of authority to make him a person of authority. So this is the way God works. And what can we say other than he is God? So two reflections to consider. 
Two blanks. Rest in the comfort and security of God's providence. Now, never for a second over those 22 years was Joseph at the mercy of any person's will. He was not in the clutches of his brothers when he was bound uh, in a camel caravan or even previously when they threw him in a pit. He was not chained in that prison. He was not forgotten about for two years because of some human plot. And it was not Pharaoh's will to to bless him uh, with authority. Joseph was always squarely in the place and with the people for the length of time God intended him to be. And the same for us, which I recognize can be a hard and even perplexing statement. As we discuss updates and staff meeting and we pray through the member care list and as I've gotten to know more of you, um, I recognize there's a lot of suffering here in our lives and in the lives of those people that you care about. It's tempting to say that this suffering is warping our lives and changing our lives into something that it's not supposed to be. Um, But that disease or job loss or accident, or pain, or cancer, waiting, feud, separation, are ultimately all from God's providential hand. Although we may not understand what His purposes are for us, we can know that if we're in Jesus by faith, we are safe in our Father's hands. We are not left to the devices of the devil, nor wicked people who want evil for us, but to God who loves us very much. As a friend told me this week, we're either at the mercy of God, who we're privileged to call Father, or we're at the mercy of random chance, where nothing makes sense. The psalmist writes in 105, When God summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. So Nancy Guthrie writes, As we take Scripture at face value, we see that God did not merely allow the famine. He summoned it. He did not merely allow Joseph's brothers to sell him as a slave. He sent him to Egypt. Joseph was put to the test of suffering by God's decree. So God ordained all of the circumstances that brought Joseph so much pain. And he is a purpose and design in what is happening to us from the beginning, even though what is happening to us might not be good. God intends it all for our ultimate good. So Joseph, though, was privileged to know what his suffering accomplished. God sent him ahead to preserve life. We may not share that same privilege. We may not get what we feel we are entitled to, the answer to the why question. But as Elizabeth Elliot titled her book, suffering is never for nothing. So your next blank. Second, trust God. His power is coupled with His goodness. Now, changing tone here, I recently stepped off into a category that there isn't recovering from. I never thought I would do this, but I am officially this kind of nerd. 
I just finished my first Star Wars novel. Now, my favorite character has never been the Skywalkers, Han Solo, the sequel trilogy, blah. But it had always been Palpatine or Darth Sidious. So I really like the, the prequel trilogy because Palpatine is instrumental. But this book takes place in the decades leading up to episode one, where his master found him and how he was trained in the dark side of the force. And you learn that Palpatine has always been that sly puppet master behind the scenes of assassinations, the trade blockade, training Darth Maul, the, ri the rise of Queen Amidala, instability in the Senate, I could go on, but he maintained the whole time an upstanding public persona as senator. He has great power and the shadow of his influence across the galaxy is long. But every desire of his heart is wicked and every action is selfish and for personal gain. Yet God is entirely the opposite. So whether in this galaxy or in the one far, far away, God is good, seeking the glory of his name through goodness to his people. So we can trust that he is seeking our good and his glory if Jesus has brought us into his family. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver talked with Lucy about Aslan. Is he quite safe? I shall feel really nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, said Miss Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. So he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. So number three, an illustration of forgiveness. An illustration of forgiveness. Now, the author has written this text in a way to show us that chapter 45 is the climax and reconciliation has been completed by the way he refers to, the fam to this family. Um, so look at 4333. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. So all through chapter 43 and chapter 44, the author, separate from dialogue, refers to the brothers as men, and men only. But in 45, everything changes. There are five references in chapter 45, no longer to men, but to brothers. Look at verse uh, 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He said, everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. They are men no longer. And there's three other references. But I want to point out my favorite. Verse 14 and 15. After Joseph speaks peace to them, he provides a theological reflection on the past two decades. He promises a fruitful land for them. 
And he says to bring the father back to share in the provisions, the author says in verse 14, Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers, and he wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. So the eleven and the one have become twelve again. The family has been made complete and whole, reconciled by the means of forgiveness. So consider two reflections. Forgiving wrongs brings joy and freedom. For 22 years, Joseph lived separated from his family in faraway Egypt. His life was not chained by bitterness and resentment toward his brothers because God worked through him and Joseph was successful. He preserved life. Yet he was not whole. He was separated from his brothers, some of the closest relationships that he's supposed to have on earth. And for 22 years, his brothers lived with lingering guilt and regret because they destroyed their brother's life simply because they didn't like him. Time cannot heal all wounds. Only forgiveness can. Now this scene is so powerful and Pastor Troy cries when he reads it because what was broken was amended. And in fact, it was made better than it was before. Listen how this family used to be defined, all the way back in 37. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. But then 45... Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. From hatred to talking, weeping, and kissing. So why are you holding grudges today? Why is today not the day to finally put that down? Yes, God is sovereign, but these brothers had to deal with the consequences of their sins for 22 years. In 2001, my my grandma on my mom's side died when I was 10. I loved her very much. This was the first major death that I experienced in my life, so I was incredibly sad. I remember all of us going through um, the house, getting ready for auction, And just my grandma not being there. But what followed was nothing my grandma would have wanted. Now again, I was 10, so I didn't understand everything, and I still don't understand everything. But what was a close family broke apart. Growing up, I loved the family gatherings on Christmas Eve, seeing my uncles, uh, or laughing with my aunts and uncles, playing with my cousins, opening presents. But after her death, the fun times ceased. My mom became the mediator between her older sister and younger brother. My aunt and my uncle quit speaking, and my mom was caught in the middle. This continued for seven or eight years. The only reference that I remember from my uncle about my aunt, or from my aunt about my uncle, was one Christmas time from my uncle asking as we left if we were heading up north. We were, because my aunt lived to the north, 
And as the family caught between, we split our holidays between the two. So this separation continued until I was in high school. I think my mom was finally able to bring them back together. A neutral ground site was chosen, a local restaurant. I remember being nervous and tense because we got to the restaurant first. We went to the back room. We got the table. Uh, It had been so many years, and then my uncle and his family arrived, uh, sat around the table. My tension was rising as I spotted my aunt on the other side of the restaurant walking toward us. She came in the room. My uncle stood up, and they embraced. The three siblings laughed and cried at the end of the table the whole meal. Our family was reconciled. And forgiveness brought joy and freedom where there was separation and brokenness. But I ask you again, why is today not the day to finally put that grudge down to forgive and begin healing? Because God is sovereign and all these brothers had to deal with their consequences of sin for 22 years and my family, the consequences for seven or eight years. And I say, what time we lost! What memories were never made? Over what? Something less, I'm sure, than estranged Joseph from his family. So it was not many years after this reconciliation that a series of strokes changed my uncle's life, now relegating him to a chair. So for a third time, I ask, why is today not the day to bury the past in the past and forgive May God give you the grace and the strength to do so because, our last point, forgive so that you can be forgiven. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Those are statements that we shouldn't play with. So if we dare to ask the Heavenly Father to forgive us, we must be forgiving people too. Because if you do not forgive what is small, you show that you have not been forgiven what is gargantuan, your sins against God. So Joseph and Pharaoh blessed the brothers and sent them on their way to bring back their father to settle in Egypt to survive five more years of famine. But to all of his brothers, he gave new clothes, illustrating that forgiveness has occurred, the family's been reconciled, because the brothers stripped Joseph of his robe, but now Joseph gives them new clothes. So the brothers come to their father, and he doesn't believe the far-fetched tale, and I don't think I would either. But when he saw the wagons, verse 28, and Israel focusing on God's covenant promises, calling him Israel, said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So in response to Joseph's dreams, the brothers said in 37.8, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? But Genesis 45, 25, and 26, again, ironically, so they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is the ruler over the land of Egypt. Now, I'm not good at conclusions, so Erica helped me. 
the brothers' feud really began with their mothers. Jacob favored his wife over his other wife, Leah. Leah bore Jacob most of the children because when God saw that Leah was hated in comparison to Rachel, he opened her, her womb. God saw her affliction and she bore Reuben. The Lord heard that she was hated and she bore Simeon. Third, she bore Levi, hoping that her husband would become more attached to her. Leah's suffering was great. She did not feel loved by Jacob, and she hoped each child that she bore would win his affection. But then she bore her fourth, Judah, whose name sounds like the Hebrew word for praise. Amid her her suffering, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. Genesis 29, 35. Through Judah, the covenant promises continued all the way to his descendant, Jesus. So it's in the grace and strength of Jesus that we can say, this time I will praise the Lord. So if you've got sin that you're entertaining, I pray that you will turn from it and say, this time I will praise the Lord. If you're suffering, I pray that you will turn and trust God's power and goodness by saying, this time I will praise the Lord. And if you've wronged someone or you're withholding forgiveness from someone, I pray that you make it right and say, this time I will praise the Lord. Because Judah's descendant, Jesus, lived a life without sin, yet suffered God's punishment as if he did sin. Jesus stood before the cross and committed This time, I will praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and thank you for the opportunity to study it. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would use my attempt to explain it. To work encouragement in the people's hearts that need encouragement. And to challenge people's hearts that need challenging. But we pray, Father, that it would come from the power of the Holy Spirit. The wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Rather than our own emotions, we pray that it would come from you. Thank you for the grace that we see in this chapter. To reconcile what was broken. But Father, interestingly, oftentimes you use suffering for good. Even if we may not understand it, Father, we pray that we would turn and trust you. And we pray that this time we would praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.